Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine. Today I have with me in the studio artist Kat Bates. Kat, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Lisa. So Kat, I have one of your pieces. So when I say artist, you are an artist in not the way that we traditionally think of the artists that I often interview here, which are the ones that create beautiful things to put on walls. Mm -hmm. You create beautiful things to put on people, typically. Yes, I'm a jewelry designer. Yeah. So how how did you get into that line of work? I've been at it for a long time. Um, I got a very early start. Uh, I've been making jewelry since I was a truly a kid, um, you know, five or six, maybe eight years old, just knotted bracelets and things like that. Um, I was lucky enough to grow up out on Monhegan Island. Um, and in that community, um, which is an active fishing community, just honestly picking up pieces of rope on the ground and playing with them is how I got started. Um, just a silly, but also honest answer. Um, studied at Maine College of Art. Um, I'd started taking metalsmithing classes when I was in middle school. Um, uh, just on the weekends and things like that and uh, had an aptitude for it. And so got a degree from Maine College of Art and I've been doing this full time for about six, maybe eight years now um, and professionally for coming up on 20 years. Well, this piece that I was very excited to find in my um, in my jewelry box, um, it, it does have a very kind of nautical feel to it. And I know that the kind of the clasps that you use specifically on, I think, bracelets, but probably also necklaces, mm-hmm. and um, they similarly have kind of that more ocean-going feel to them. So as you were, I don't know, as you were growing up on Monhegan, were you were you looking at the things that were connecting, you know, I don't know, the stuff on lobster traps, let's just say, Absolutely. and thinking, oh, that's interesting. I'd like to use this differently. Yeah, um, I think that that environment um, really informed like my sense of beauty um, and what that means to me. And I've long followed the adage, uh, form follows function, um, and I'm really drawn to utilitarian forms. Um, and marine hardware is particularly interesting to me for one, it's something that I've been exposed to for a long time. And so there's like this warm, familiar association with it. Um, and then as I've been working with jewelry, and perhaps part of the reason that I work with jewelry is um, it's a unique kind of hardware. It's a unique uh, kind of utility because of the parameters that it's working within. You know, we've got these metal elements that are particularly historically, uh, you know, when we're looking at um, the use of like hemp rope and cotton rope, um, working with these soft fibrous materials. And so things need to be able to integrate. Um, And so you get a lot of smooth forms, you get polished forms, Um, you get forms that are easy to use um, with cold hands or with wet hands. Um, And these are a lot of the same parameters that to me make good jewelry, which is jewelry that you can put on, you can forget about, Um, you don't have to really be conscious of as you're wearing. It can blend in to your appearance. And for me personally, um, I really like making pieces that people can put on and just forget about and leave on and, you know, wear in the ocean or in the shower and sleep in. Um, And so that kind of uh, comfort and practicality is even more important. Um, I would note also uh, that um, I design and make all of the hardware that I use. Um, that's really important to me. I want to have control over all the different steps of the process and all the elements of the design. Um, so there are very, very few pieces of the pieces that I make that I am not designing from the ground up. So as I'm looking at this piece 
um, and I'm looking at the clasp, mm-hmm. it, I, I, I have no idea what it entails to actually design a clasp to go on a bracelet like this. Would you walk me through that? I'm happy to, yeah. So um, that specific piece there, um, I started out with sheets of thick plate brass um, that were uh, you know, about three sixteenths of an inch, or maybe closer to an eighth of an inch thick each. Um, three layers that were all cut to the um, profiles of those elements. Um, and the reason there were three layers is that I could define a crisp hinge. That that piece has a hinge built into it. Um, and so those layers essentially created like a, a topograph of the final form um, with that hinge, that mechanical detail being very uh, defined from the beginning. And then once that detail and the basic outline was defined, I then carved the metal to create that form. Um, There's other ways to do it, but it's the process that I used for that particular piece. My process does tend to vary piece to piece. Um, Sometimes I'll carve wax, sometimes I'll carve directly in metal, sometimes I'll carve plastic or wood. I'll often bounce between a few different techniques. Um, In more recent designs, I'll make something out of wax and then have it 3D modeled and printed so that we can play with the scale or refine um, uh, pertinent geometric uh, details that like have to be just right um, in the digital space and then go back after the fact and you know finish that form by hand or pair it with a process that will give it a um, richer character than something that's just oh it's 3d printed and then it's cast and then it's done um, it's still gonna be interesting yeah so you were saying that you've you've been doing this sort of work for 20 years I'm assuming there were not 3d printers back in the day Mm-hmm. Has has your process evolved or has your art evolved over the last two decades, given the new technology that is out there? I would say yes to the first part of that question. I don't think that the new technology has radically changed the kinds of shapes that I'm making or the... Um, no, yeah, or the, the kinds of shapes that I'm making, yeah. Um, but it has uh, sped up the process. Um, it's I, th- I think of it like uh, you know table saw versus handsaw. They both cut things. One happens to be really good at cutting things very square. Um, but you can cut something square with a handsaw. You just have to take a lot longer. So it's a it's an efficiency. Um, but to me, uh, with both, you need a good design to get a good piece of art. And so the tool that you use. just dictates how quickly you get there. Um, does that answer the question? It does, mm-hmm. yeah. And it, it is interesting also that you've, you've said you kind of move back and forth amongst techniques. So you, you don't, mm-hmm. it's not like you're ever in any way mass producing. You're, you're still kind of, well, I mean, I guess you could be with a 3D printer. You could be doing more than you might have done once if you were doing all hand-carved. But you're still very carefully paying attention to the design as you're going along. Mm-hmm. And when I say I bounce between techniques, I would mean that specifically in the um, the development of a design. Um, when I'm actually making the pieces of jewelry, there are two primary techniques that most pieces are incorporating, with plenty of exceptions, of course, um, but uh, lost wax casting and sand casting. Um, and so the the way that I get to the master, which will then either be sand cast or lost wax cast, varies a lot. But for most designs, the metal elements are made using one of those two techniques. And so what, what can you accomplish differently 
between those two. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really fun distinction. Um, so the, the piece that you have in front of you there, um, the metal hardware is lost wax cast. Lost wax casting allows for um, complex surfaces, internal geometries, undercuts, um, and uh, a very high level of detail. Um, when I use lost wax casting, I would use it for pieces that require very precise geometry, that require undercuts, um, or pieces where the form has some um, visual complexity to it that adds intrigue. Um, you know, on that piece there, the curvature of the different um, parts and how they blend together um, is intentionally reminiscent of a bone form. And so that form itself um, is kind of doing the aesthetic talking. Um, with sand cast pieces, those tend to be pieces that are um, simpler in form, not necessarily less exciting or less beautiful, um, but where they're not bringing as much detail. And the coolest thing about sand casting from an aesthetic standpoint, strictly, is that it naturally leaves a really rich, gritty surface texture, similar to actually the walls behind us, um, as opposed to the surface of the table is lost wax cast, the grit of the wall is closer to a sand cast. And so rather than decorating my surfaces with patterning, I'm using processes that celebrate the form itself. But the two processes, those two different casting processes, lend themselves to different kinds of forms. So then as you're designing, are you considering what you're going to be using, whether it's the lost wax or the sand casting? Are you considering which direction you're going to be going in? or And how does that usually work? Hmm. I am usually thinking about it. Um Pretty early on in a process, I'm going to have an idea of how complicated the shape needs to be to get where I need to go with it, um, particularly if it's something that has some mechanical um, element to it. If it's, you know, like a pendant or a cuff bracelet that's going to be a static shape, um, there's a little bit more flexibility there and then it has to do more with the aesthetic goals. Um, but yeah, early on in the process, I'd probably know what I'm going to use. Um, economy is a factor. For larger pieces, it's more economical to sandcast them in-house. For smaller pieces, it is generally more economical to um, job out lost wax casting them. I have a great relationship with a foundry down in Rhode Island that I've been working with for like eight plus years now. Um, they do uh, the vast majority of my lost wax casting. Um, but uh, just the way their pricing works, larger pieces get very expensive very quickly. Um, and so if I can sand cast those, I will. Um, as far as deciding which one to use, um, I, think it, I think it is mostly an aesthetic decision. Um, I enjoy the challenge of figuring out how to get things to sand cast and like how can I bring this awesome surface texture onto a new form or, you know, sand casting is a very industrial technique. Um, and so it has these really rigid parameters that have influenced my aesthetics as I've started to use the process. And I think that's really cool, but also what can I do to break these parameters and make something new is a fun question to ask. So that's the, it sounds like that, that is at least a pretty significant part of the art and the creativity of this. Uh, yes. The design of the pieces that I'm making and how they're going to be made is a hundred percent, um, 
part of my uh, creative outlet as an artist. Yeah. So what, you know, initially growing up on Monhegan, I'm, I, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that there weren't, you know, jewelry designers up and down your street, having been to Monhegan a few times, mm -hmm. I, I, there are definitely, it's a very artistic community, but m much of the art that seems to be produced out there is painting, for example. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're a kid, you're, you're going to Maine College of Art, you decide I'm going to do metal work, I'm going to mm -hmm. do jewelry design. Where, where did that come from? How, how did you get inspired to follow that particular artistic pathway? I've always enjoyed mechanics and mechanisms and been intrigued by how things work. Um, you know, as a kid, uh, getting my hands on a broken camera and getting to take it apart was like the best. Um, it was as fun as it got. Um, and, you know, I, I went to Maine College of Art for their jewelry program. Um, I'd started studying jewelry when I was in middle school. Um, taking classes at Maine College of Art. But uh, that started, um, my mother was a non-traditional student at Maine College of Art. Um, she'd gone to school earlier in her life and was going and getting more credits um, and uh, was taking, you know, intro to 3D, intro to 2D, um, mold making, um, and brought home a uh, continuing studies catalog, um, which just discreetly left it on the kitchen counter. Um, she and my dad, they did great with this one. Um, just left it there. And then maybe a week later asked me, oh, you know, you, you see anything that was interesting? And it was like, actually, that jewelry class looked really cool. And they had assumed that that's the one that I would do. And I, I have a good relationship with my parents. I trust them when they say that they made that guess. I don't know how. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, as soon as I started with it, it clicked very quickly. Um, you know, it, done a little bit of sports, done a little bit of like this and that. And it was a decent student overall, decently engaged overall, but it was the first thing I'd ever done that uh, really spoke to me. Um, I just haven't looked back. So I, I got lucky um, to find that so early on in my life. I mean, that that is so intriguing. The, the fact that you're a middle school student and even then, you said this is this is the form that that calls to me. This is what I want to be doing. It's weird. Yeah. Well, I was going to say weird. I was going to say well, intriguing is the word I used. I mean, it's I think it's um, it's it's interesting because I, can't, I think it gives you a little bit more of a jump start if you're starting in middle school as mm -hmm. to the work that you're doing. Absolutely. As an artist, so you went into doing this full time eight years ago. Approximately, yeah. yeah. I have to do some math in my head. Yeah. So what were you doing before that? And what mm -hmm. gave you the opportunity to say, okay, this is really what I want to do now? It's a great way to phrase the question um, because it was access to opportunity was very relevant in that. Um, so when I graduated from Mecca, um, while I was still studying at Mecca, you know, I started my business during that time. Um, and uh, during the summers was living out on Monhegan Island. And for the last two year or two of school was working in the studio for most of the time during the summer. Um, and then uh, was also working in commercial kitchens, um, just at restaurants and, you know, in food service. Um, and uh, I continued to do that after graduating. Um, and that was my primary income. And uh, when I moved back to Portland, um, I was working at David's restaurant, um, first as dishwasher and then as um, a cold pantry. Um, and, you know, bringing my artistic training to these positions, <laughs> to be honest, uh, you know, like I, I can make a very pretty salad. Um, 
uh, and was lucky enough to get a job working at Maine College of Art as the technician in the dolls department. So I had a studio set up at home, you know, as soon as I moved back, I was making work as soon as I moved back. Um, but it was getting that position, um, that gave me access to equipment, um, and access to facilities, um, and access to community, which obviously is really important with things like this. Um, so I forgot what the question was, but I think I can carry this out. Uh, oh yes, opportunity. Um, and so I had the opportunity to work in or to create work in a fully outfitted studio, you know, also having a smaller studio at home, but like this, this larger space. And that was, um, really important stepping stone, especially, you know, once I started to pursue wholesale contracts, um, having access to a larger space, you know, at that point I was doing my own lost wax casting. It was at that point that I started to teach myself sand casting. Um, it was like just digging around in the closets, trying to understand what equipment was on hand so that I could tell the students what was available. And I found this box of stuff that I had no idea what was and started watching a lot of YouTube videos and reading a lot of books and taught myself how to sandcast. Um, so, you know, there's definitely some networking there. There's definitely some talent there, but also, yeah, I got really lucky, um, in that, uh, just had the personality to be able to do that job. Um, and then also like access to, um, uh, Monhegan, access to audience was huge. Yeah, I would think that, I mean, the people who come to Monhegan, there's something that, I mean, obviously there's a longstanding arts community, a lot of people who come in the summer, that's specifically why they go. But even just, you know, as, as not an artist going there with my kids and, you know, walking around the island and just being connected, I can see how your work would really be very appealing because there is something very reminiscent of a you know summer's day on a boat mm -hmm. um, in the in the work that you do and so to just you know carry around this memory with you um i think that's really powerful mm -hmm. um you know I, I wholesale my work around the country and i have customers you know around the world purchasing through my website um and i definitely do the best here in new england um you know i think i think you're spot on um if someone is visiting, it's a really easy reminder of the atmosphere of this place. Um, and if someone lives here, then, you know, it's a really easy thing to appreciate because you can relate to it. You're in Biddeford now. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Um, when we moved off of Monhegan, we moved to Palermo, Maine. Um, this was when I was in elementary school. And then um, at that time, my dad was uh, finishing... Um, up college, and we then moved to um, the Kennebunk, Kennebunkport area um, when I was entering middle school and going through high school, um, and you know moved up to Portland um, for college. Lived up there, um, moved back to Portland and had been living there and uh, for a while. I think a little bit less than a decade. Um, really liked living in Portland, um, and at that towards the end of that time, um, you know, when it started working full time, I had my studio in the Dana Wart Mill out in Westbrook, which is a beautiful space. Um, but was starting to thinking about, started thinking about, um, you know, wanting to have a house. Um, and I had worked from home, you know, having studios set up in my living space and um, in studios that I commute to. And so I had familiarity with both formats. I knew that I really appreciated a, um, 
live work format. Um, I know that worked for me. Um, and the real, uh, I'd started like making moves, um, but the real uh, motivating factor was when the Dana Wart Mill sold um, and entered under new ownership. And I did not feel um, very stable in the space, especially where I'm doing my own casting. Um, and so I have some more industrial requirements um, compared to a lot of other artists. Uh, I need to be able to use compressed gases um, and have pretty robust ventilation to do my work safely. Um, safety's cool. Um, and so, yeah, shopping for houses. Um, and I did not expect to be able to move to Biddeford. Um, it was certainly on the list because it was close to my parents um, and I knew it was a beautiful area and I knew there was a lot going on there. Um, but I assumed that I'd missed the boat economically. I know that it had you know, been up and coming for a while. Um, and when the house that I'm in now came on the market, it was a shock, uh, but looked at it, it, it checked the right boxes um, and uh, went a contract. And then um, about two weeks later, it was right after the, uh, the inspection, um, got finished up, the state went into lockdown. Um, so it's a very, very stressful um, thing to commit to, but I'm really glad that I did. Um, I really like Biddeford. Um, it is changing a lot that comes up basically whenever you talk about Biddeford um, is its economic revitalization and how different it looks. Um, I like that it still has grit, to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, that is more attractive to me, that character, um, than the stuff that's coming in now. I recognize that, uh, you know, Economic growth does have benefits by and large, but um, it, it, I also feel a little bit sad when I see um, demographics changing and, you know, it, it, social equity is really important to me and housing in particular um, is something that I'm really passionate about. And um, I didn't realize until moving down there that um, housing affordability is even worse in Biddeford than it is in Portland um, because it has historically been such a lower income community that as it became popular, folks got priced out really fast as the cost of living increased, um, which is really sad. Um, and so that's something that I've done my best to get involved with down there um, is advocating for that. And, um, you know, I, I think I mentioned um, that uh, I've been doing a lot of renovation on my house. And part of that is um, turning it into a multi-unit um, so that I can offer more housing. Um, so I'm building an accessory dwelling unit that um, I'll move into. It's located over the studio. I'm really excited about that Euro style setup. Um, and then we'll rent the front of the house. Um, hopefully the person that I have living with me now will stick around. Nick's awesome. It's my old studio mate from Westbrook. Um, shout out to Berlian Arts. Um, they're amazing. Um, if you need any digital work done as a jeweler, um, photo, web design, um, CAD, et cetera, they do excellent work. I mean, you're talking about Biddeford and I, I know it's been um, undergoing revitalization, mm. and you talked about Westbrook, and that also underwent revitalization. Yeah, good point. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, I think it's as somebody who's lived in Maine a long time and has actually a family who's connected both Westbrook and Biddeford. Mm. Um, and in fact, the the mill employment in both of those places, and particularly mm -hmm. in Biddeford, where I believe my great grandparents, you know, were working, and at, at the very least, my great great grandparents and that yeah. family. I mean. I think when back then when you talked about multifamily units, I mean, you were talking about straight up mill housing and yeah. you were talking about people who walked down the street to the mills, did mm -hmm. their work, walked back up the street. Mm -hmm. and, and it's so interesting to think about the fact that it was just a very different kind of art 
in a very big and industrial way that people, they were, they were still making things, but mm -hmm. they had no opportunity to participate in the creativity, mm -hmm. but they were still, I mean, in a weird way, this was sort of the industrial industrialization of new England. It actually presented opportunities at the time, you know, that got people off farms and, you know, got people mm -hmm. out of other places. So I think it's, I mean, this latest transition that you're describing, I think it's one of so many of the transitions that's happened in mill towns across the state of Maine. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of funny that you're in the middle of it because you're seeing, you know, the social equity coming back around again and you're participating and creating something that I think was the standard, you know, probably a century ago anyway. I think that, yeah, it was easier to live a century ago. Yes. Yes. I know that was yeah. a very convoluted comments <laughs> yeah. last question. So thank you for your patience with that. Of course. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's what, what I love about talking about, for example, your experience with the Dana Warp Mill mm. is, um, I mean, it's unfortunate that it went to a place where you, you were no longer able to be there, but I love that artists have kind of gone in to fill the spaces in these mills. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I had my medical practice in the mill near the Royal River here in Yarmouth, mm -hmm. there was a glassblowing studio just down the hall, yeah. you know. And mm -hmm. so I think that's the thing that I love about being creative is that you look at a space and you don't think, oh, well, we can't make textiles there anymore. What are mm -hmm. we going to do with it? You look at it and you think oh, well, we could do something else there. You know, I mentioned like being attracted to the the grit that Biddeford still has. And I think that speaks to exactly what you're talking about. Um, it's it's potential. Um, it's uh, It hasn't been defined yet. Um, and that's really exciting. Yeah. Um, something that I would love to see um, happen in the state. I don't believe it exists yet, but I know there's other parts of the country where, um, you know, different kinds of factories have been converted into um, live work artist spaces. Um, I think that's a really neat model um, because it is very expensive, especially as you're starting out. Um, it, it's not that it's expensive. It is very hard to access, um, especially as you're starting out um, both studio space and housing. Um, and it is hard to make a living as an artist, especially, you know, if you're if you're, um, you know, building from the ground up, it's really challenging. And so making that more accessible, um, just changing, you know, zoning, um, I think is the one big hurdle there, and then maybe public appetite um, to allow those kinds of, um, uh, I don't know, rental opportunities to exist um, so that it can be used for, for both. Um, yeah. The other thing that I'm intrigued by is that we've been talking about jewelry, mm -hmm. but you also have been involved in bandanas. Yeah, yeah. That seems like a little bit of a kind of an offshoot. Or maybe mm -hmm. a pretty big offshoot. I don't know. But tell me about that project. Yeah. Um, so this is a really fun project. Um, it's the most recent uh, project that I've wrapped up um, is the St. Lean collaboration with Douglas W. Milliken. Um, it's the second bandana that Doug and I have worked on together. Um, Douglas is a good friend. He's a main author. Um, he's written a couple of novels. I think his second or th I think his third novel is um, coming out soon. Um, many short stories. Um uh, we started working together, um, five or six or seven years ago, um, when I was designing a cuff bracelet based on the form of an orlock, um, and thinking about, you know, why that form is relevant to me and, um, remembered this experience that I had when I was a kid growing up out of Monhegan, ferrying a family across the harbor and getting across the harbor to Manana and losing an orlock over the side of the skiff. Um, 
And it was a really fun um, memory that had some interesting layers to it. Um, wow, this reminds me of a Doug story. Uh, and so I reached out to him and I was like, hey man, like, do you want to write a story about this? Um, and we'll figure out some way to incorporate it with the piece. Um, and so he wrote the story. It's great. Um, and uh, we went through a few different ideas and decided to print it on a bandana. Um, you know, wanting something that would have some practicality, uh, that would have some physicality. It's a very short story. Um, and so just having it like on a piece of eight and a half by 11 paper didn't really feel um, like enough of a celebration of its artistry. Um, and uh, it was a really, really fun project to work on. Um, I did the graphic design and the illustration for it. He wrote the story. A friend of his did the printing locally. Um, we actually found a um, font that had been designed by... Um, Oh gosh, I'm blanking on the professor's name, but uh, one of the professors from Maine College of Art designed a font that happened to fit really well with it. And so we used this locally made font, which was really fun, um, and uh, you know, developed a packaging concept, et cetera. Um, so really fun project. Uh, Doug came to me with a story after that, and I designed a pendant that went with it, and we developed a more robust packaging concept for that one. Um, and so more recently, um, I was wrapping up a necklace design um, it's called the Portal Necklace. Um, it's up on my website now. Um, it's a visually, it looks kind of like a donut, and then it has a little um, soup at the top. Um, it's much more beautiful than a donut, in my opinion. Uh, but it is kind of just a, a, a round, like inner tube shape um, that hangs on a cord. Um, and I like being able to tell people like inspiration and where did this piece come from, and was feeling a little bit of frustration with that piece because it had just kind of happened. But I started thinking about like, how did this happen? Um, I had this chunk of metal that had been sitting on my bench for years that I'd just been, eventually got around to hacking up. And I think I'd made it um, as a lost wax casting sample at some point, but I couldn't remember exactly when. And I clearly worked over the whole surface with a hammer at least once, if not twice, just like chasing the whole thing. And so this shape that had this lost history was still beautiful and still inspiring me and still influencing me. Um, and I was, I was talking to my mom about it. I'm like, uh, and she's like, but that's so cool. Um, like that is an interesting backstory. Like that, um, something that's been lost is still relevant and still affects me. Um, like, oh, wow. Okay. Okay. And so this sounds like a Doug story. <laughs> and so I reached out to Douglas, um, and, uh, he came back with a few options and, um, I read through Saline. It's like, yeah, okay. This is, it, it isn't a direct match, but I liked that it's what he thought of when he heard that story. That felt like, um, like true collaboration to me, like it's a bounce back and forth. And our original plan had been to um, have like a strong visual tie through between the two pieces, not necessarily have them a set. We went into it from the beginning of like, let's just see what it's like to make a bandana. Cause I, I love wearing bandanas. I think they're really just like a nice fashion accessory. Um, and uh, liked the idea of having a lower price point item as well. Um, and so, yeah, we played around with some, some like crossover with the design and ended up um, pairing that back and pairing that back. And so it's a very subtle connection now, but you know, for me still relevant, I'm like, oh, cool. Like I, I see how they connect. Um, 
but, you know, I brought the graphic design to the piece and the logistics, finding a local printer, um, researching the different um, ways of doing the printing to get the highest quality product we could, um, going through the proofing process, um, all the layout and what have you, um, and then, you know, I'm managing the distribution of them. Um, uh, it's a cool story. Um, it's, it's funny. It's about folks that are coming out of sad places um, uh, and, you know, finding joy in just like simple moments um, uh, or a simple moment of just, you know, they're, they're sitting there in the morning laughing about some story and like the, the narrator's totally lost track of the thread and has no idea what's going on, but is enjoying it because his wife is happy as she's telling him and their cat's hanging out with them. And it's, it's very basic and it's very subtle and it makes me really happy. And, you know, every time I've read through it, I've felt a stronger connection to it. Um, and it speaks to me more and to my desire to appreciate those moments and a reminder to appreciate those moments and to be grateful for the things that I have, however small they are, um, or the things that feel big because they're big for me. Well, as someone who appreciates the connection between art and story like that that also speaks to me and I, I love the collaboration that you're describing because I think that makes it even more powerful that you kind of cross different media to, to come up really with fun. this yeah. yeah Kat how can people learn about the work that you do well my website is catbates.com and then um, if you're on there I would love it if anybody signed up for my newsletter I put a lot of effort into that I put out a few a year um, so it's not very often um, work really hard to not make it spammy um, uh, it is truly an update on what I've been working on what I'm thinking about these days um, and then of course I am on social media at Cat Bates Jewelry on Instagram um, and uh, yeah, if, if folks are interested in learning, then my website is definitely the best place to start. Um, there's a lot of text on all the product pages and then um, on the info tab, it's a big chunk of um, inspiration listed under there and just information about, you know, we haven't even gotten into like the cord work that I do. Um, uh, you know, when I say made from scratch, the cord on that piece is hand braided and hand spliced. Um, and that's true for a lot of the designs that I make. So talking about those different processes as well. Um, and if anyone wants to read Celine, that story, I, I decided to publish it in full on my website. So, you know, I would love it for folks to purchase the bandana, but you can also just enjoy the story as it is um, on the product page. It's there in full. Hey, well, I invite people to go to Kat's website, but certainly as a working artist who is supporting himself, please buy stuff. That would obviously be ideal. So learn about things and also buy his art. Um, but it's truly been a pleasure having jewelry designer and artist Kat Bates and, uh, former Monhegan resident, very special place, here in the studio with me today. I'm Dr. Lisa Belial. Thank you for listening to or watching Radio Maine. And thank you, Kat, for coming in and having this conversation with me today. Thanks so much for the questions, Lisa.